Hello, Hooray for Monday listeners, and welcome to the last week in February. We are closing out the month with a real treat. Today, we're honored to bring you an interview with lifelong education author and activist Jonathan Kozel, who also happens to be a longtime friend of Inspired Teaching. Aletta, tell us a little bit about what led to this conversation. I'll have to go way back to when I was becoming a teacher, and Jonathan's writing influenced so much of how I thought about my work and my role. He's always been a champion for children, a true believer in every single child's innate capacity to be curious, creative, and, as he puts it in our conversation, morally irreverent, meaning prone to do what is right and just when given the freedom to do so. And that not only influenced my work as a teacher, but eventually my work as a teacher of teachers. Yes, I remember in my first Inspired Teaching Institutes back in the early 2000s, we read Jonathan Kozel's books. His quotes were, and still are, on our walls. But we've gotten to know him off the page, too. We have. Back in 2015, we gave him an award for his lifetime achievement in pushing for engagement in schools. And he's contributed ideas and insight to our work for decades. But today's interview is actually a result of his response to a recent issue of Hooray for Monday. It was about the small steps teachers can take to build student curiosity and agency. And in his note, I learned that Jonathan has a new book coming out called An End to Inequality. He sent me the draft to read, and it's incredible and very, very necessary. The book will be published by the New Press on March 12th, but copies will be available at bookstores by March 4th. And it's available right now for pre-order wherever you buy your books. I've already ordered a lot of copies for us at Inspired Teaching, and I encourage all of our listeners to order your own copy. In this upcoming interview, he paints a picture of the major themes of the book. Let's hear what he has to say. I'm Aletta Margolis, and this is Hooray for Monday, your inspiration and toolkit for the week ahead. Interview with Jonathan Kozel. Hooray for Monday, February 26, 2024. Jonathan, thank you so much for for speaking with me about your upcoming book. I want to start by asking you, in, in your book, you articulate with vivid detail the ways in which compliance-based schooling, which is especially prevalent in schools that serve Black and Brown students, harms mm-hmm. students and their teachers. Can you offer an overview of the book and what do you want readers to know? And, and most importantly, okay. what do you want people to do after we read your book? Before we get into the other issues, um, I'd like to make clear right from the start that my forthcoming book, An End to Inequality, is it's not as soft and gentle as some of my earlier books. It's it's a direct confrontation with the racist status quo in U.S. education, and especially at a time when segregation, racial segregation in the schools is at the highest level since I was a young teacher. And even worse, a disparate agenda, as I call it, what you might call a parallel curriculum, has evolved mostly over the past 25, 30 years, which um, treats the children of the black and brown and poor as if they were a different species of humanity and treats them as if you know, they, they're 
not able to learn unless they're under the constant fear of failure and a punitive code of discipline, which um, a lot of a lot of our viewers are probably unaware of this, but a code of discipline that includes shaming rituals, like um, Shaniqua, you're in red zone. It means uh, a bad area. Uh, it's sort of a warning code. The discipline that I've seen in inner city schools uh, also includes lockdown rooms. That is putting a little kid who you know, may have made a minor misbehavior into a hallway closet for several hours um, where he or she cries for their mother and wets their parents. And maybe worst of all, a frequent recourse to a juvenile arrest, where, which is um, wildly disproportionate in racial terms. Black girls, for example, are 3.6 times as likely as white girls of their age to be hauled off from their school by, by police and, and uh, put in at least temporary detention. Uh, in the book, I describe a little girl, six years old in um, Florida, had a you know, little tantrum in her classroom. And uh, she was brought into the nurse's office or the principal's office. And they started, and, and somebody started reading a story to her and it calmed her down. But by that time, they had already called the police. And the policeman came in. And uh, even though she was calm by now, put her in zip ties. And she started crying and said, please don't put me in handcuffs. But he did. And he literally physically dragged her out of the school and pushed her into the back of his, his police car and took her off to detention. Now, remember, she's six years old, where they, um, they took a mugshot of her <laughs> fingerprint and mugshot. She was so little that they had to put her on a step stool in order to take the mugshot. And um, that's um, the kind of atrocity that, that um, takes place all too frequently. So the, the first stage in the famous school to prison pipeline. Corporal punishment is still allowed in nearly half the states. And uh, it's most common in the states where lynching was most familiar. So that's one part of the story that I tell in the book, because, you know, I have so many liberal friends who think themselves progressive, but they're still talking simply about teaching methods and they're, they're kind of unaware of the, of the, just the wild cruelty, what I call the amputation of a child's dignity, which has become so common, but as not only, but especially in schools that serve black children and Latino children. The book also focuses on severe funding cutbacks that we've suffered in the schools. And you know, typically what happens is there's a local economic crisis. So temporarily they say we have to go on an emergency funding basis and, and repair schools and so forth is, is postponed. But then they, they, of course, they assure the parents, once the economy improves, we'll restore it all. 
they almost never do. So it goes, it, it, it goes on and on and on, and uh, it leaves the buildings in ugly disrepair. You know, I, I just think schools ought to be beautiful places. They ought to be like, a, I don't know, every day ought to be like a, a treasure of learning in a life-affirming setting. And instead, these are ugly buildings, frequently lead-infested. We've been warned for decades that um, lead poison causes irreversible cerebral damage, especially a young child. But um, that goes on and on and on. They always say, we're going to fix it. But then there's another funding crisis of some sort. There's this pretense that we, I call it the myth of scarcity, that there's this pretense that we're a third world country. You know, that we, we can't afford to send in a team of people to get rid of the lead and put some cheerful pictures on the wall. And I just add another consequence of the funding shortage, which really amounts to an attack on the public sector, is the loss of school librarians and school libraries, which have been disappearing over the past 20, 30 years. Same with art and music teachers. And um, since No Child Left Behind and the Miserable Common Core, I call it miserable because um, it, it famously discourages children from doing any writing that has to do with their feelings, with their emotions. The other aspect of this is that, is that this tough agenda has denied teachers in many schools almost all of their autonomy. So, you know, a, a teacher who has a lowly creative style is sort of frozen out. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just a short distance to the north is a very poor industrial town called Lawrence, Massachusetts. Lawrence is now overwhelmingly Black and Puerto Rican. And the state, you know, has never considered integrating the kids in Lawrence with three or four very well-funded districts that sur immediately surround it. And they're close, and, the, and it's an area where there's not much traffic, you know, so it would be easy to do. Instead of any any possibility of integrating those kids, they brought in a private corporation, so-called teacher trainers. And this teacher, this Lawrence teacher, was a sixth grade teacher, I think. She, her class was invaded by three of these teacher coaches who were sent in by a private corporation. They're sent into the school in order to retrain the teachers to be more severe. And uh, they sat in the back row of her classroom. And one of them spoke to her while she was teaching. One of them spoke to her through an earpiece that she had to wear and gave her instructions and said things like, you look too happy. They warned her that she, was, she wasn't to lift one leg higher than the other. She was instructed to stand in, quote, mountain pose. Now, I'm not very cool, so I don't. I don't know exactly what that refers to, but it doesn't sound much like Mr. Rogers to me. You know, Some little boy um, spoke out of turn. She was told through her earpiece, 
give him a detention. So at that point, one of the one of the little kids in the class, I think it was a boy, yeah, he stood up out of his chair. A little guy with an independent spirit, a nice irreverence. He said, what's that thing in your ear, teacher? Uh, and, and, and the coaches kept talking to him, say, don't answer him or something like that. And uh, a little boy said, um, don't listen to that, miss. Be a person. Be you. I love it. He said, be you. He said, I'm a person, too. And um, I just loved that. I thought instead of a detention, that little boy ought to get a prize. I wish, you know, that spirit, that healthy spirit of irreverence. Um, I, I just wish that were an acceptable goal of public education, especially in a nation where um, we're faced with all kinds of dogmatic tyrannies right now. Uh, I just think almost more than anything, we, we don't just need well-skilled products from our schools, we also need morally irreverent citizens in the United States. Not violent, not destructive, not cruel, but capable of challenging any, any evil that's, that's right in front of their eyes. You know, that, that they don't need more studies from universities. Uh, these things are too obvious. And I think um, you asked me once, why do I tend to focus on conservatives in, in my critique of the public system? And uh, well, partly just because far right wing politically, people who are far right wing politically have been among the strongest voices perpetuating the dual system. But the truth is, I don't limit my focus to conservatives. I also focus on um, what I would call um, sort of timid semi-liberals or neo-libs as, as the media calls them who, you know, they say the right things, but in reality, they turn their backs totally on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and the promises of Brown. And with some notable exceptions of which I'm very proud, you know, when there are exceptions, and I describe one, uh, a wonderful urban-suburban integration program where the parents in the suburbs have been great, have actually transcended all the limits of a racist society and <clears throat> made these kids welcome and successful. But with that, with that exception, an awful lot of liberals I know, like right in New York City, they get nervous when people talk about integrating their school on the Upper West Side, which is a mainly white and fairly wealthy area, with um, schools maybe just five, ten blocks to the north in, in, in Harlem, in West Harlem. So I don't know. I just, I don't think it's just, it's too easy to blame it on, uh, you know, mad followers of Donald Trump. If that were the only problem, I would feel hopeful that we could lick it somehow, you know, just go out and get more people like you run for office. But it's not just that. It's a, it's a system that's 
been frozen into place. And I don't think it's going to change if we have another couple of years of so-called conversations about race, which are almost self-congratulatory, too easy. I, I think we need militant action. That's, you know, it's my final book, given my age, and I won't live to see this, but I would love to see a, another wave of passionate civil disobedience on the part of kids staging walkouts from a, a truly destructive and brutal school or teachers and children together. I don't think you can just write a letter to your Congress member. I think we need much more militant action. You know, if I'm still alive, I'll go out in the streets and join it. Oh, Jonathan, thank you. Everything you've said has been so important. So I want to ask you a little more about the self-described liberal education reformer folks. And, and uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to connect this question to the earpiece because I know about the, the earpiece thing probably 10 or 15 years ago at Inspired Teaching, we had a funder who super progressive, caring about the issues that you and I care about. They were super excited about the earpiece. And as you know, at Inspired Teaching, a lot of the work we do is, is exchanging feedback, teachers giving feedback to students, students to teachers, coaches, giving feedback to teachers. And, mm -hmm. and this partner of ours said, you gotta get these earpieces. We'll, we'll grant you, you know, a bunch of earpieces, isn't this great? And we said, well, tell us more. And the more we learned, we, we concluded as you did that, you know, this is a horrible idea, right? But <laughs> that idea of the, the earpiece is marketed still today using all the words you and I believe in, meaningful real-time feedback, oh, right? Yeah. Respect for the teacher, respect for the child. It's place-based coaching. And, and it sounds <laughs> great. So I think those guys, our colleagues who lots of folks that, that you and I know who are who are out there focused on education and high quality teaching and equity, but in fact they're boiling down teaching into these sterile chunks and teacher training moves and summer camp to prep you to become a teacher and all of these things that are perpetuating the problem in the name of equity, in the name of access, in the name of quality. And I would I would love your advice on how we engage with, with those guys and what, what well, we have to say to them. First, I think we need to be very skeptical about these repeated cycles of, quote, reform. I've seen maybe 30 cycles of reform in the time since I became a teacher when I was I mean, in the 1960s, when I was teaching fourth grade in, in one of Boston's classic segregated schools, which I described in my first book, there was a new reform. It was aimed at minority kids. It was called Operation Counterpoise. And it was stated that it was to counteract the liabilities of Black families, that, you know, their supposed cultural incapacity, their lack of culture. School board never even had the chutzpah to say, we don't need this in white neighborhoods because their families are fine. Anyway, that came and 10 years later, it was gone forever. But by that time, there was, there were a whole row of new, of new reforms. There were schools of quality, quality became a favorite word as though 
as though education was, you know, like a quality washing product or something, like a, a quality light bulb. And when that didn't prove, that didn't work, the same group started a program called Total Quality Education. That was borrowed from, I think, some business theory, total quality something in corporate in the corporate world. And then there were Renaissance schools. There were schools of excellence. <laughs> I once came out of a school in the Bronx, which was, it had a name, but under the name it said School of Excellence. And there's a little boy that I really got to like named Obi and he was with me because he was at the school. And I said, what's that mean? And he said, oh, that means we're excellent. And, and then he said, and also good. I thought that was so funny. It just showed that it meant nothing. Yeah, then there was the whole thing around NCLB, uh, No Child Left Behind, and then the Common Core. And now I notice the Common Core has almost disappeared from only a few districts still take it seriously anymore. So it's like, I call it like a deception. It's, a, it's like a way of lying to poor children or to their parents, as if to say, we, di we didn't know it worked until just now. But here at this university, we just figured it out. Now we know what works. And I think there have been books even with titles like that. What works? As though people were too dumb for the past 2,000 years to figure it out, but we just figured it out. And we turned it into 10 units of teaching. And we're sending it to your school. And you better teach it. I, I think we need a massive wave of skepticism about stuff like that. I, I think what matters is that the teacher has a reasonably small class size in a safe and cheerful setting that he or she is given a maximum chance to, you know, that, that she has a sense of joy about getting up on Monday morning and going there. And it's gonna be an adventure. She's, she and the children are going to explore the world. They're gonna explore their own possibilities. They're going to not just study history, but prepare to shape it themselves when they're 20 years older. And teaching and learning ought to be an adventure. And that's what I'd fight for. When I say things like that, people always say, um, you know, I sound like an unregenerate version of my dear old friend, Fred Rogers, you know, that it's like I haven't outgrown my fondness for, for him and his values. But uh, as I say in the book, if that's the accusation against me, I don't take it as an insult. I think that Mr. Rogers, uh, if we're looking for models for teachers of young children, I'd up Fred Rogers before any of these tough guys with their, with their penalties and paddles, you know. I, of course, I'm biased because I really loved him and had the joy of visiting schools with him and seeing him squeeze his bottom into those little, those little tiny chairs 
in kindergarten, first grade. And I noticed he had a great gift of listening to children. He would listen. He would listen unexpected things, too. I don't know how he did it. But I tried to copy him as best I could. And we need teach our teachers to have a chance to do more listening. Jonathan, will you speak more about that listening? I, I know that that is so very important and it's a critical part of the work we do in, in teacher professional learning is, is literally teaching teachers how to listen because I think we, we have this almost like this logic problem we're trapped in. We are all a product of the education system that taught us to think short-term, that taught us to sit quietly until we're called on and say the right thing and then be quiet again until the next time we're called on. And, and so we bring that so many of us into the classroom and you're saying, don't use corporal punishment, don't use shame, don't use rote, meaningless, amputated versions of learning. And we say the same at Inspired Teaching. And so what we often hear back is like, okay, you're taking away all my tools. If I can't yell at the kids and I can't hit the kids and I can't put the kids in detention and I can't call the police and I can't do the worksheet that instead of reading the novel, what do I do? That's a question we often hear. Part of the answer is listening. I'd love to hear more from you on offering our teaching colleagues who want to make the change, offering them something to hold on to, some steps that they can take? Well, first of all, I think part of the problem starts with traditional teacher education. Now, I don't want to antagonize all my good friends in schools of ed, schools of education, because some of them are wonderful. And besides, they invite me to speak, so they, they must have good taste, I like to think. But um, the problem with teacher education, I've always felt this, it's far too, it's far too mechanistic and, too, and limited too much to things like strategies, strategies of control, strategies of delivering bowel sounds or something. And uh, not that I'm opposed to phonics, by the way. I don't want to make more enemies. And, uh, I used to teach phonics, actually. I have no problem with phonics as long as it's interwoven with wonderful books. You know, I, an intelligent use of phonics makes absolute sense to me. Back to teachers about listening. I think it starts in teacher education. I think the schools need, the faculties in our schools of education need to elicit more from the, from the would-be teachers by asking about what do they love? Why do they want to be with children? Do they have a sense of humor? You know, are they able to laugh and smile at something that's annoying but kind of, kind of screwy, of which there's a lot in the public system? I also think the education are given in many schools of education, it, it seems to lack a real exposure to the arts, to the liberal arts and humanities. Not much poetry. I think a future teacher of reading would benefit more from falling in love with poetry, taking a great poetry course in the main, you know, not in the school of ed, but in another department of the university, like in the English department, and courses in philosophy and ethics. Um, 
so they'd be more broadly educated in areas that kind of free the soul from constraint. That's what I believe. Um, you know, we're at a moment in history where everything is supposed to be science, science and scientific. And the newest, one of the newest reform cults includes the word uh, scientific learning. Yes, science is obviously important in the age, you know, interplanetary travel. And it's also sadly very useful in the military in terms of armaments and sophisticated ways of killing people. But um, I think without a rich immersion in the, tre the same treasures of our culture and other cultures that I mentioned before, I don't think they will, I don't think they will be able to broaden their personalities. And it takes self-confidence, I think. It takes a kind of cultural self-confidence to be able to shut up and listen to it, a child. <laughs> you know, one reason Fred Rogers was so good at that was that he was himself a beautifully educated person. We as adults, and that includes teachers and parents, often feel if we're in the presence of children and we're not speaking, or one of my favorite words to critique, delivering something to our young people, we're not doing our job. And, and it takes great confidence as an adult to, I agree with you, to listen to a young person and also to say, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Tell me more. Because we, we tend to, we tend to be like taught, that. right? We're supposed to know every, I'm the teacher. I know everything. And it's hard, especially with young children. I think should do, we should do everything possible to indulge their curiosity and their unpredictable curiosities, even when they threaten to take us on a detour that, that wasn't predicted in our lesson plan, you know? And not to be scared of saying, oh my God, how will I ever get back to that item three and my lesson plan for today? Just don't worry, do it tomorrow. Jonathan, I think that's so true. And as you know, my work with teachers is based in improvisation because an improvisational actor, like a teacher, has a clear goal and welcomes all the crazy stuff that comes in and incorporates it. So you, you incorporate your kids' off-the-wall comments and questions and ideas, and, and you value those instead of batting them away. But that takes a I different approach to teaching. You, you are, everything you say strikes a familiar note with me. I, I always, I've always hated the term delivery of skills, as if we were working for FedEx or UPS, you know, deliver. Okay, I'll deliver a consonant blend to that little girl. I, I think develop is maybe a better verb than deliver. Teach is also a pretty good verb in that situation. Yeah, I do think at the heart of many of, many of our problems now, it's not just that corporate invasion of schools of education. By corporate invasion, I mean, a lot of teachers tell me that when they were in ed school three years ago or whatever, they were taking a course that was based on 
a grant from some big corporation, but it, it had strings attached to it. You know, like a lot of stuff about, I don't know, some specific things about what expectations must be demanded of children at a particular age in the third month of the second grade or something like that. So it is, it is a, the corporations have been invading too much of life, too much of ordinary life in the United States, but especially in the public schools. But at heart, in the long run, wholly apart from the physical condition of a school, which I do believe is extremely important because I think, I think a, just a dreary, ugly school with water leaks in the ceiling and so forth, I think that soils the mentalities of children. It robs them of their sense of being little blessings to us. It's as though they were throwaways. Put them over there in that ugly building. But apart from that physical, physical issues, my book really puts a lot of emphasis on returning dignity to teachers. And the goal of teacher education ought to be to encourage teachers to be as exciting and adaptable and always curious and not tyrannical and, and not feel bound to um, follow tyrannical instructions. And I think that means ultimately trying to fill our public schools with wonderful human beings, but not just well-trained, dutiful technicians of mechanical proficiencies. People who can inflame excitement about learning to children. There's, a, there's a, an old phrase, you've probably heard it a hundred times. It's sometimes attributed to the Irish poet, William Butler Yeats. But I actually think it originally came from the Roman classics, or, or, Greek, or Greek or Roman classics. And it was essentially this, uh, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And uh, that's the ultimate, if there is a message, that's perhaps the ultimate message of my book. Resources. If this interview with Jonathan Kozel has whetted your appetite for more, we've featured links to his full library of books in our show notes, including one to where you can pre-order his new book. Here are a few titles we've loved. Death at an Early Age. This is Kozel's first book, which recounts his experience teaching fourth grade at one of Boston's most overcrowded inner city schools many years ago. Savage Inequalities a searing examination of the extremes of wealth and poverty that calls into question the reality of equal opportunity in our nation's schools. Letters to a Young Teacher. This is a collection of letters Mr. Kozel exchanged with a first grade teacher, Francesca, whose classroom he repeatedly visited at an inner city school in Boston. Francesca sounds very much like an inspired teacher as she brings a quest for engagement to her work with students. Professional Learning. Registration links can be found in our show notes and on our website. In his interview, Mr. Kozel talks about how schools of education should pique teachers' curiosity and fuel their creativity rather than teaching them a bunch of strategies. That's what we try to do in our professional development, and we hope you'll join us for some upcoming sessions. 
In March, we'll explore the tools and resources we've been developing to support civic discourse in the classroom. How can we get our students to talk to each other more? How can we make those conversations meaningful? And as the polarization in the world outside our classrooms heats up, how can we teach our students to engage with difference in a way that fuels curiosity and not judgment? Join us for one of two online sessions to gather ideas and share insights with peers. Sessions take place on March 13th and 19th at 7 p.m. If you're a teacher in Washington, D.C., we hope you'll consider becoming a Teaching with Improvisation Fellow this summer. We will have in-person information sessions about this incredible year-long program on February 28th and March 18th at 5 p.m. We'll give you a taste of what the Summer Institute and year-long support look like and offer space for your questions. Youth programs. If you work with or know high school students, let them know about Speak Truth. Inspired Teaching brings students together for youth-led conversations twice a month, once in person and once online. We have an online session coming up Tuesday, February 26th at 6 p.m. And our next in-person session is on March 14th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at MLK Library. This is a conference day for DC Public Schools, so students are off, and this is a great way for them to learn and earn community service while they're out of school. Hooray for Monday is an award-winning weekly publication of Center for Inspired Teaching, an independent nonprofit organization that invests in and supports teachers. Inspired Teaching provides transformative, improvisation-based professional learning for teachers that is 100% engaging intellectually, emotionally, and physically. Our mission is to create radical change in the school experience, away from compliance, and toward authentic engagement. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week.